Welcome to Movies on the Side. This is Stephen Robles. And this is Nate Baranowski. And this week we review the 2014 Christopher Nolan movie, Interstellar. We talk about the music, we talk about the effects, we talk about the characters. We talk about the science and relativity and all that stuff. Time slippage. We briefly go into Romance Corner and talk about Matt Damon as Dr. Mann. And Nate tries multiple times to do a Michael Caine impression. And it can't be done. (laughs) (laughs) All that and more on Movies on the Side. As you know, Nate, we have some of the best listeners around. The Mott's fam are literally the best. Mm -hmm. And we have a particular listener who is also a Patreon supporter, which is very fun. But this is Carolyn Hutchlowski. Yes, I believe I said that right. But I actually went to high school with her, so I've known her for a while. But she has made a movies on the side bingo game. It's very, very good. It's very good, Nate. I know you like board games. I do. <laughs> and so, yeah, I know you do. I do. And so I thought you'd be very excited by this. So she has made a movies on the side bingo, and she has sent pictures and video. We'll be posting this on our Instagram, so you all can enjoy this. And if this launches a world of Mott's board games, we're not going to be mad about that. I just want you all to know, listeners. Go crazy. Right. And I want to let everyone know that this one is the canonical Mott's bingo board game. That's right. Others afterwards have to approach her. That's right. That's to right. basically ask if they can create a spin-off. Right, licensing. Bingo. But this one, this one is ours. Yes, for sure. So, and on this board, she's been listening. Carolyn's been listening for a while. So, she's got some pretty hilarious little squares on the bingo board. Things like condiments, which goes back to the very beginning, mayo on a hot dog. Things like coffee, which we talked about in the bonus episode this week. Uh MacGuffin, something that Nate <laughs> says pretty often a 2049 which is a funny inside joke now i want to let you know that if you're listening to right now and you're thinking oh great i'm getting getting to fill up a ton of my bingo board none of these count he is saying the spaces you don't get to x these out no 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 yeah that's right It, it doesn't happen until after this moment and that's right that's right she even has egot on here which is i which i still aspire to the word canonical i also feel like a lot of these great phrases are yours, and apparently you have all the cool catchphrases. Uh, or you're a robot who kind of goes back to the same script over and over again. Now, wait says, a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. But I, I, can, I can, looking at this space, I really can picture you saying, oh, my word. Like, I really, oh, yeah, I can yeah, hear yeah. it. Yeah, I can yeah, hear yeah. it in my head. I mean, to your credit, on this board is Brit Slip. Which is something that you coined on on this show. It's true. It's true. Accent Corner, which again, goes with Brit Slip, but it's all you. Cut that part out. I think you say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're right, because it's me that wants to get you to do more editing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A perfectly serviceable. I think you must say that, because I don't think I've ever said that. Mm. Yep. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. possibly. Outro bit. Anyway. Thank you. Thank you for making this. Yes, thank you, Carolyn. This bingo game is incredible, and we look forward to an expanding world of Mott's board games and <laughs> supplements and whatever else you want to call uh, these things. But this is wonderful, and you're the best. We have the best Mott's fam, as we call it. Absolutely. So, oh, and by the way, if you, listener, would like to become a supporter of Mott's, you can go to patreon.com slash movies on the side, and a donation of any amount per month, 
And it's not a donation. It's not tax deductible. <laughs> but a, but a, a contribution of any amount. And you can get access to all of our bonus episode back catalog. And uh, we got a lot of episodes there. It's good content, as they say. Are we doing this episode in reverse? Is that what's what? happening here? Well, hey, the, I'm just so used to you doing this at the end of the episode. Uh, you're just doing like an earlier plug here? There's some time compression because of the movie we're doing today. So, you know, sometimes oh. it happens at the beginning, sometimes at the end. That's all. This episode will sound like it's 10 minutes long, but really we recorded for three <laughs> days. <laughs> That's right. Patreon.com slash movies on the side. Yeah, you can go there. Anyway. This week, we are reviewing the 2014 movie, Interstellar. Now, I'm curious your relationship with this movie, because this movie was... I was watching some videos about it. I know you're usually the one who does the research, but I did some research mm -hmm. for this episode today. Because it's been a while since we recorded, and I'm like, I want to I be prepared. This was probably the biggest movie of the year, that year, Interstellar. Lots of people went to see it, and I remember it being very divisive. Mm -hmm. I remember people seeing it, and they were like, my life has changed. I have seen something. And A singularity. I've seen the singularity. I've seen. I'm changing my worldview. The event horizon. Yes, and then yes. other people, like, walked out because they were like, I can't stand this movie. It's, you know, just ridiculous. And so I, I remember it being very divisive. I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it later. I don't even know where... The first time I saw it. Oh, I saw it in theaters. Now, we, we will do a spoiler horn. Because if you have not seen Interstellar, I mean, there is a large turn at the end. Yes. That we'll save for after the spoiler horn. Because it, it's, it's interesting. But your movie-going experience, like experiencing this in the theater, is a long movie. I mean, I would have had to go to the bathroom like four times if I had seen this in theaters. But what was it like seeing in the theater for you? I remember back in 2014, I was so excited to see this movie because... It was right around then when I realized I loved almost everything that Christopher Nolan touched. So this came on the heels of, this is the string, Batman Begins, The Prestige, The Dark Knight, Inception, The Dark Knight Rises, and then Interstellar. So I was completely ready for it. I was blown away by the movie theater experience in 2014. So this is seven years ago, and I still remember the feeling of going, this sound is fantastic. This score is haunting and Hans Zimmery. Hans Zimmer. This is like his bread and butter. And the IMAX like quality of it. I don't exactly know when Gravity came out, but I had similar experiences of going like, whoa. While watching it. Right. Because it felt like, oh, this is like a, almost like a documentary in some ways. Like, I feel like I'm there. I'm in this yes. endurance station with them. Yes. But I remember walking out of that movie, Interstellar, in 2014 and thinking, that was good. And I want to discuss it at length. But I don't have a podcast with Steven yet. <laughs> Not yet. Because I don't know him that well. Time slippage. So. We didn't even know each other at all then. 2014, I don't think. Ah, uh, maybe we knew of each other. We were probably both in sub 30 at the time. Across yeah, a crowded dance true. floor, we, we caught <laughs> eyes. We said, it's maybe true. one day I'll podcast thought, with that I bet, guy. I bet that's a guy <laughs> who would have some thoughts on Interstellar. That's right. But I remember thinking, it's not my favorite, and I don't necessarily want to watch it anytime soon. Now, right. fast forward to 2021, this year. Mm-hmm. I have not seen Interstellar since that very first time in theaters. So this is my second viewing. And it is amazing how much I remembered from that first yes. viewing. Yes. Because I think I could have told you the plot pretty well 
Oh, yeah. Just after one viewing. And so it definitely stayed with me, but I had almost no desire to rewatch it, except we had to watch it for this. So here we are. Yes, and it is a hard movie to rewatch. Like, I was debating even last night do I watch a couple scenes just to kind of really cement them in my mind? And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. And I don't need to do that. Like I, I can picture mm. most scenes pretty vividly. Right. And so I guess, I guess that speaks to the quality of the movie because it has serious sticking power and staying power, even though it's three hours. This movie is like three hours long, people. Exactly. I think it's what, two hours 45? And it's two hours 45. And it is not like... There's not many fast-paced parts of this movie. Like, it is not only very long, but also kind of slow, save for three to five action-y scenes, I guess you could say. Right. Like, there's a lot of cornfields at the beginning. There's a lot of black space with weird little special effects <laughs> showing what a wormhole might look like. And, and there then, are planets in the second... Yeah. The first yeah. trimester of the movie is corn. The second is dark space. And the third our planets planets slash black hole which we will get to but yes the plot of this movie if you've not seen it is that the earth has is suffering from something called blight this was the one thing i did not remember from my first viewing is what it was called that was killing all the crops right <laughs> so it's called blight like b l i g h t and it's basically some kind of chemical thing or an organism it's unclear but it is basically killing all crops meaning all food on Earth, right? and will eventually replace oxygen as the predominant thing in the air, and so we wouldn't be able to breathe on Earth anymore, and we need a solution. Yeah, it's feeding on nitrogen, I believe, Michael Caine yeah, says. Yeah, yeah. It feeds, <laughs> on, it feeds on nitrogen. 80% of our galaxy. We, oh, I can't do a Michael Caine. I want to so badly. Michael Caine. Oh, that was good. So, thank you. We, it's blight, and it, we have to get off this planet. <laughs> <laughs> I think I went a little Jason Statham there. Nate, what I what I want. I wish you would have seen The Godfather so we could do a bit right now with the line Two that says, ago. what I want. Oh, a God, guarantee. No more year. attempts on my father's life. I like how we're both doing different impressions of different lines right now, simultaneously. What I want is a recording of the meeting between Christopher Nolan and Michael Caine, where Michael Caine signed his life away and said he's going to be in every Christopher Nolan movie ever. Every Maybe there's some kind of interview that talks about that relationship, but he's in every Christopher Nolan movie. I love it. Even if it's just five minutes. Oh, I love it too. I mean, he's great. Even if in Tenet, he's literally in the movie for 45 seconds, says a few lines, didn't know anything about the plot until he watched Tenet. In theaters, or maybe not in theaters. That's amazing. Earth's atmosphere is 80% nitrogen. We don't even breathe nitrogen. Blight does, and as it thrives, our air gets less and less oxygen. So anyway, that's the plot. And then Matthew McConaughey, who has a daughter and a son, wife since deceased, uh, was a pilot and is recruited to take this space mission across a wormhole to find a habitable planet for the human race then to uh, procreate on. So that's the, that's the plot. Now, I think before the spoiler horn, we can talk about Matthew McConaughey mm -hmm. and his kids. All right. All right. <laughs> See, you, you told me I only got one. How many yeah, that was my get? one. No, oh, I didn't, get, one, I didn't was, get that one. Oh, you yeah. got to do the one. Okay, I get it. Okay, so Matthew McConaughey's character name is Cooper. 
and then child Murph, played by Mackenzie Foy. I think she did a great job portraying not wanting him to go. You know, there's there's a pretty heart-wrenching scene where Cooper is telling her, like, he's leaving, and he doesn't want to leave on bad terms. And Murph doesn't, or Murphy, doesn't give him, like, the satisfaction of leaving well. And that's, like, a really heart-wrenching scene. Don't, don't, man, don't make me leave like this. Come on, Murph. Don't make me leave like this, Murph. In watching this movie as an adult parent, I cried in that scene. Wow. Because when Cooper has to leave to go on this space mission, and he doesn't know when he's coming back, and his daughter, he says later, I don't want to tell her that the world is ending. Because that's just, you don't do that to a 10-year-old. Now, we can discuss later whether we should or not. find a way to do that when she's an adult. Like, hey, open this letter when you turn 18. I have some news for you. <laughs> but anyway, the, the scene of her basically saying, like, I want you to stay. And, like, this, the, the, the ghost or whatever in my room is telling you to stay. And her being mad at him and... He has to go. So he's like, don't, I don't, you know, leave like this. And he says, I love you forever. And as he drives away, she runs out of the house. Oh, yeah. Like, but she missed her shot to say goodbye to him. And he's crying as the countdown is overlapped. Yes. Yes. I shed a few tears that time around, this time around. Yeah. Because it hits a little different. And I even think his relationship with Tom, his son, is also good because he has a good relationship with his son, but it's different. Like they're not kindred spirits in their, you know, in their love of exploration and science. His son, you know, wants to be a farmer. Right. And he has this meeting with the teachers at school and they talk about how his son doesn't have good enough grades for university. And they're saying he'll make a great farmer. Right. And Cooper doesn't want him to be a farmer. Like he's a farmer, but he was a pilot and engineer. And he wants his son to be that, too. I just think it's interesting, like, that dynamic. But then when Cooper goes back to his son, and they're like, well, you're going to be a farmer. And the son is like, I actually like it. Right. You don't have you don't have to fight for me to be an engineer. Like, I actually like what we do. I like our farm. Right. Like, I will do it. And that's, a, I think, a heartwarming sentiment. I don't know. The son is like, I'm okay. Right. And he's trying to communicate that to his dad. Well, his dad says, basically, I'm happy if, if you're happy. I like our farm. I'd be great at it. I have to say this, too. Yes. Watching this movie in 2021, people wearing masks because of, like, the Dust Bowl-esque. It is very interesting. Yes. It's a different sort of feeling that I had in 2014. I was like, oh, it doesn't seem that bad. You just have to wear masks all the time. Yeah. And I thought something else that was really poignant that I did not notice the first time around was this. The way Christopher Nolan shows dystopian future, it is like the opposite of the Roland Emmerich version because he doesn't show great grand scale of calamity and disaster he shows small town and plants you with these eerie eerie things or things said nonchalant like well we didn't have baseball when we were growing up because we were too busy fighting for food right and like all of these small things and i found this particularly interesting when the teacher was like we've since corrected the text on the apollo missions yes and going to the moon it also feels like okay uh i kind of understand how conspiracy theories 
may have grown over the course of you know the 50 years or so and now it's you know it has taken hold yeah and that hit a little different it really did 2021 as well it's an old federal textbook we've replaced them with the corrected versions corrected explaining how the apollo missions were fake to bankrupt the soviet union and the look on matthew mcconaughey's face in that scene as she's saying that like he his face is how I felt as she was yes. saying that. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> like you are not <laughs> denying this. And that was interesting. I also just want to mention John Lithgow as like the grandfather. I think he did a great like oh, supporting he was great. role. Yeah, it was really great. Yeah. And, and the one moment that I really liked between Cooper and his daughter is when he actually believes her. He like follows what the ghost is saying for the coordinates and they go to that NASA base and they pull up on the fence mm-hmm. and you know, he goes back to the car and he's like, sorry, Murph, the fence is locked. Didn't we bring bolt cutters? And Matthew McConaughey's like, yes. that's my girl. I was like, that's that's a nice little moment there with, with them. Didn't you bring the bolt cutters? That's my girl. His relationship with her when she's 10 is really sweet. I think that whole family dynamic, I think it's really cool with John Lithgow, like, is his deceased wife's uh, dad and he's taking care of the kids as well. And, right. Like their family dynamic is really nice. Yeah. Nate, I feel like we need to talk about space. And before we get to the spoiler horn, I just want to mention the research I did leading up to this recording was the science that actually went into interstellar. Uh-huh. I didn't realize there was a whole book written called the science of interstellar uh-huh. and the the author is Kip Thorne, who was also an executive producer on the movie. Who Dr. Also a, Kip Thorne. Dr. Kip Thorne. He was the science advisor, also a colleague of Neil deGrasse Tyson, the astrophysicist. And so there were lots of sciencey things that actually went into it. And this is the line that every science fiction movie has to ride is how close do we stay to real science right. and real space and where do we break the rules? And how do we show a black hole that has never been seen before? Right. In 2014. And which is that, you know, that's the most controversial part, which is the end, which we'll talk about after the spoiler horn. But I do think it was interesting. I saw this one interview and I put a link in the show notes with Christopher Nolan and Kip Thorne. And there was one thing that Christopher Nolan wanted to put in the movie, which was he wanted to have Cooper and the other astronauts travel faster than the speed of light at one point in the plot. Mm -hmm. And Kip Thorne was like, no, that's impossible. (laughs) And they apparently spent two weeks debating this. And eventually Kip Thorne, the science advisor, won out and was basically like, this is impossible. This breaks t- like too many rules of astrophysics. No. Right. And Christopher Nolan actually conceded. <laughs> and then Christopher Nolan's it's amazing. And then Kip Thorne said, well, I mean, locally, there are cases of things traveling faster than the speed of light, but we're not going to get into that. <laughs> Christopher <laughs> Nolan was like, are you kidding me? So I-, I appreciate that they actually sweated a lot of these things. And they had a science advisor as the executive producer who actually wrote a book. Right. And this guy, Kip Thorne, is a specialist in Einsteinian relativity, which comes in in the whole time slippage thing, which yep. we'll talk about. But I just thought that was really cool. And of all the science fiction movies, like they actually tried to stay straight with the science. I smiled because I thought of how you in- would enjoy 
every time that space is shown or open in the endurance and there is no sound. Yes. <laughs> that is... I thought of you every time and I thought, Stephen mentions every time that every time. an explosion happens in space and there is sound that there should not be. And this movie is pretty on the straight and narrow. Yeah, and like there were even times when there's like debris hitting the windshield and I'm like, okay, if you're inside the spaceship, then you would hear it because there's right. oxygen in there to carry it would the vibrate sound. The, yeah, the air would vibrate, you know, the sound would vibrate <laughs> right. through the air. Right. But as soon as they go to an outside shot, it goes silent, except for the music by Hans Zimmer, which we'll mention in a second. But they did really, obviously, well on that because they wanted to. They wanted it to be really as accurate as possible. Right. Music, before we get to the spoiler horn and rating it. Yes, 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 yes. The yes. score by Hans Zimmer. Yes. While I have not even watched this movie in many years, I would still listen to the soundtrack every once in a while because it is great background music for working. And I just love like the electronic and the organ and the atmospheric sounds that Hans Zimmer did in this movie. I think the sound and the music, I believe it was nominated for musical... I don't know if it is it the score that was nominated for an award. It was nominated for the score, sound mixing, and sound editing. I think I have actually been a little hard on Christopher Nolan, especially in the Tenet episode, of feeling like, <laughs> well, you have to watch that movie with subtitles because the sound mixing deprioritized the dialogue too much. <laughs> right. But the sound mixing in this movie is impeccable. It is very good throughout. And yes, Hans Zimmer's sort of electronic, not stereotypical sweeping music score, but a little bit more yes. space, the final frontier. Very good. All right, Nate, well, let's rate this movie on a scale of zero to five books, mm -hmm. which comes into play later. <sighs> I have no idea who went last. Or who went first last? Who went it's last? It's been so first? long. The first shall be last. I'll just go. I'm going to give it four out of five books. I'll just go. I'm going to give it four out of five books. I think this ability is hard to gauge. I, I don't want to see this movie anytime soon, mm -hmm. but I would like to see this movie one day with my kids mm -hmm. because I think it's a good movie to think about. I think it helps you think about life and, you know, it is engaging. And I think the science is interesting. And, you know, one of the interviews between Kip Thorne and Christopher Nolan, they talk about how Christopher Nolan was growing up around the 10-year age during the space race when we were going up into space in like the late 60s and 70s. And that got him very excited for space. And as he started this movie, Interstellar, actually a lot of the stuff that he had absorbed about space and science from his childhood came back. And he talked about how the importance of you know, exposure at a young age and, and getting excited about things like science younger at a younger age. So, you know, you can care about it later. And so I think for that reason, I, I want to see this again with my kids one day, but it is not a movie you rewatch multiple times anytime soon. Unlike Tenet, which like, mm -hmm. I kind of want to see again. And I could even see seeing, I think you've watched it multiple times since we yeah, even did the episode. And like, I think that has more rewatchability. I think the Dark Knight you know, Christopher Nolan movies have rewatchability. I just think this one is so long and so, like, heavy, especially a couple scenes, which we're going to talk about in a second. I feel like, you know, it's not it's not a perfect movie. You know, so that's why I think a solid four out of five books for me. What about you? 
I know I say it every time, but this is tough for me. Let me say a few words before I give my number, because hopefully by the time I finish saying these words, uh-huh. a number will be more apparent to me. Okay. okay, okay. I think the beginning of this movie is a fantastic piece of art. Mm-hmm. I think he sets up the dire nature of the Earth, the family dynamics, and the beginning of a space adventure brilliantly. I think the middle portion with the space travel is also riveting. Again, these take up a lot of time. This is a two-hour and 49-minute movie. By the time it gets to the end, I have gone through a lot of emotional angst. This movie brings you, as a good movie does, into the movie. It makes you sad. It makes you scared. It drags you through everything. It makes you infuriated. Yeah. Yes. It, it drags you in the red rider wagon behind it the whole time, and you're just feeling every bump. You're feeling like you're there. It is harrowing. At the end of the movie, I don't feel enough resolution to feel like the ride in the wagon was worth it is not the right term, but that it had as big a payoff as it had conflict. Yeah, and I think you question, like, did we reach the end? Are we there? Like, is this the end? Are we there? There is some intentional hollowness presented at the end, and there is some intentional, like, yeah, it's there is some just sadness to the reality of things. Right. But I am left halfway through this movie thinking, why don't I watch this movie more? Why don't I love this movie? This is great. And then by the end of it, I go, oh, I remember. This is why I didn't watch this for seven years. And that's probably why I won't watch it for another 10 years. Like you said, like when my kids are older, maybe again. So I think all of that being said, I'm going to give it, I'll give it a four as well. Okay. It is a somber four. Because I think I want to do three and a half, but man, this movie as a movie is really, really good. And I can't, I'm afraid that if I said three and a half, some wonderful listener of ours would say, here are the other movies you put at three and a half. And I would say, <laughs> Hobbs well, and Shaw. This, movie does not, <laughs> right, this movie does not belong with Hobbs and Shaw. This is actually a wonderful piece of art. Yeah. So I'll give it a four as well. All right. We forgot to do this at the beginning, but the Rotten Tomatoes for this movie were 72 critic score 86 audience score so i I think our our four out of five is right in line okay sounds good all right so here's the spoiler horn and then we're going to talk about space so we're going to talk about space and maybe even before we get to space that we should talk about anne hathaway and matthew mcconaughey because they're the two the two protagonists of this movie and we see a lot of them together i think i like their dynamic which is tension meaning matthew mcconaughey like his ultimate goal is really to get back home to his daughter and family and she's like wanting to do the sciencey things and i think it's a good tension and i don't know do you believe kind of their relationship towards the end where she actually like cares for him romance corner right now i think it's romance corner i mean that's how they our listeners now check the bingo square Romance Corner. <laughs> I think Romance Corner is a thing because that's kind of the ending of the movie. They start with a level of courteous, polite, we are both scientists together. And they halfway through develop a friendship and a mutual respect for each other. And I think by the end of the movie, what we're told 
and shown is that that mutual respect and friendship could develop to a relationship. But I don't think we necessarily, we maybe see the seeds of the relationship, but we're not really, they're not like flirty flirty in this movie. I would say all of their communication is a lot more friendship. My daughter was 10 years old. Couldn't teach her Einstein's theories before I left. Couldn't you have told her you were going to save the world? But they do save each other's life at one point. Right. Where Matthew McConaughey saves her on the wave planet, and she saves him on the ice planet, which I want to talk about both of those. That's going to draw you together. That's going to draw you together. Okay. So, the you know, their mission, they go through the wormhole, we see some cool special effects, and then it's like, we got three planets to check out. Right. And we, we're trying to find life. So we're going to go to this one first. It's the water planet. <laughs> I mean, that's what we just need to call it. Filmed in Iceland. Oh, really? Interesting. I'm guessing, this is through my Christopher Nolan knowledge, uh, there were some Batman Begins, uh, Raza Ghoul seems filmed in Iceland. I wonder if while they were there and scouting that, they found this really cool, like, shallow water right. area. Right. And, they, and Christopher Nolan said, all right, keep this in mind for whenever I have to do a water planet. Yes. Now, what I love about the plot device of this planet is that because of relativity and because of gravity and the black hole that is near this planet. So every hour on this planet that they spend and not back in space is seven years on Earth. One hour to seven years. And this is science. This is actually Einsteinian relativity right. and gravity. And like this is a thing that would could actually occur in space on a planet and time. I actually watched an interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about the science of this movie. And he says, we actually experience it even here on Earth because the satellites orbiting Earth right now actually experience a different pace of time and are automatically corrected as they send data back down to us to make sure the time actually equals out. So it's just like mind-blowing. It's amazing. So this is something that could actually happen. And knowing that fact, knowing that Cooper wants to get back home to his daughter, who is 10 years old when he leaves, that is a constant tension when when they're down on this water planet. And it is an incredible plot device for suspense and drama. It is probably my favorite scene of the movie. It is also helped out by the score because at at one point in time the beat of the music is at 60 beats per minute in line with a second and when they arrive on this water planet the tempo slows down on the beats showing the like the elongation yes. and that's a very cool feature and in the score, there's almost like a tick of a clock. Yes. I, I don't know because I've, I've listened to this track of the score many times. Because I just love that tick and then the sound when the first wave actually comes into view. And that line when she's like, the mountains over there. And he's like, those aren't mountains. Those and, aren't mountains. Oh, my right. goodness. The last science thing I'll pull from Neil deGrasse Tyson. He says that waves like that might actually be possible on a planet that close to a black hole. Sure. Because gravity is so strong that they are that high. The incredible part is it's not the waves that move across the planet. It is the rotation of the planet bringing whoever is on the planet 
to the waves. Tore the waves. Oh, my goodness. So the wave doesn't move. The planet does. I, I, that just blew my mind. It was a very good scene. I was sorry that the guy, like some disaster movies, yes, you know, like someone's got to die, and it happens to be the guy from Hunger Games. I don't right. know his name. But he's got great Wes sideburns. Bentley, who plays Doyle. Yes, yeah. exactly. Doyle is so close to making it back to the ship before that wave hits that it's like, man, so sad. Just you need to run a little faster. But I want to talk real quick about the crew because we have Doyle. Yes. I want to say that Romilly oh, yeah. has probably the worst deal of everyone in this movie. And that includes Casey Affleck as adult Tom. But <laughs> Romilly's got it rough. <laughs> yeah. Because Romilly stays in that ship while they go down to Water Planet for 23 years. <laughs> and he's not quite the same when they get back. No, as no, no one not. would be. No, he was by himself for 23 years. Yes. He also does a ton of work, which at least he did something important. But then he sort of dies unceremoniously on that next planet. He does. And it's like, oh, Romilly, you survived for 23 years. I really wish you would have made it back to, you know, the the giant uh, space flauta that uh, (laughs) everyone lives in. There is a line when they get back to the ship, Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway, and she they see him, and he's obviously aged 20-something years. And she asks, why didn't you go to sleep? Because they had these like hibernation chambers. Yes. And he says this line, which I thought was so interesting. He says, I, it felt wrong to sleep my life away. Because he didn't know how long they were going to be gone with the time slippage. And right. I don't know. I thought that was, you know, even though he went a little crazy because he was by himself for over two decades— I also feel that I don't want to just sleep for 23 years. I stopped believing you were coming back. Something seemed wrong about dreaming my life for me. He was doing some work up there. Yeah, he is definitely a hero in this movie. Which I have to say, speaking of the hibernation technology, if I were to be in the Lazarus Project and sent to a planet, and then my planet were to, say, not be great, and Matt Damon says... Later on, as Dr. Man, I I didn't even set a wake-up point. I was kind of like, yeah, I'd do that pretty fast. I'd be like, all right, well, I'm either going to be saved or I won't. Well, I'm going to get my affairs in order, and then I'm going to go down for a long sleep. And if someone comes and wakes me up, great. If not, cool. We just, <laughs> That's a deep question. I think I might last a little longer by myself, depending on the planet. Uh-huh. If I had one of those TARS or CASE robots with me, I think I would last a little longer. You can get pretty far with the TARS. And I, I just want to say, I loved those robots. Very good. And I thought they were... They're very interesting because they're a very simple design, but then they also transform in ways you don't expect. Like on the water planet, I don't know if it's TARS or CASE, but like changes into like a star. Yes. It kind of like rolls around and then, you know, they have arms at certain points. Like those were kind of cool. They were cool robots. Yes. And they were funny. Agreed. Why are you whispering? They can't hear you. Dr. Brand and Edmonds. They close? I wouldn't know. Is it 90% wouldn't know or 10% wouldn't know? I also have a discretion setting, Cooper. They leave the water planet, and then they watch videos that have come in over the past 23 years. And, you know, Matthew McConaughey, in certain movies, acting-wise, Lincoln commercials, debatable. Mm -hmm. When he pulls up those videos and sees his son and daughter Mm -hmm. 20-something years older than what they were when he left, Mm -hmm. that crying scene... 
Like, I felt that. I felt that hard. Especially because his kids were not particularly kind. That was another scene that got me. Yeah. I just want to say kudos. Because that was, that was a real heart-wrenching moment, seeing those videos. This is a quick, sad part. So if you don't like listening to sad things on Movies on the Side, skip ahead 20 seconds. But during that scene, when Casey Affleck, his grown-up son, Tom, tells him about and meets, shows him his grandson, Jesse, or granddaughter, Jesse, as a baby. And then in the next video, was talking about, like, sorry, um, you know, I haven't recorded much because of Jesse. And then he said, like, we buried grandpa next to mom and next to Jesse. And it, I didn't realize until I watched it this time that they had a kid showed Matthew McConaughey, the kid, and then the, the child died. And it was like, oh, the kind of extra pain of like, I didn't, I'm not even going to meet the adult version of this child is super sad. And we're back. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also this is not as sad, but the daughter really digs back at Matthew McConaughey when she's like, I am now the same age you were when you left. <laughs> that line is like, are you trying to kill this man? Oh, man. With emotion. <laughs> like, that's so heavy. You once told me that when you came back, we might be the same age. And today I'm the age you were when you left. She holds on to a certain type of pettiness for her dad, where I feel like she is now working with Michael Kine. At, and trying to work on this thing shouldn't at this point in time michael kane explain to her like your dad is a hero and the world is dying and he did not want to leave you but here we are sort of thing like i feel like at, the, at some point in time halfway through she said like i was mad when you left so i didn't want i felt it was selfish for me to like get little snippets from you now but i thought man as an adult but again, I said earlier, he needs to have sent a, open this when you're 18, yeah, or really Michael Caine, please show this to her when she's 20, and I can tell her all the things that I wish I would have told her when she was 10. Yes, I agree. Now, we go to the second planet, the ice planet, and uh, Nate, again, because this movie sticks with you, I was actually dreading this scene. Yes, yes. I, I knew this scene was coming, I knew exactly how it went. And I still, like, didn't want to watch it. It might be both the worst and the best scene in this of this movie. For sure. First of all, Matt Damon's in this movie for, what, like 20 minutes? Yep. But his character, like, you have almost the strongest feelings about his character than any other. Because <laughs> he lies about the viability of his planet. And then he brings Matthew McConaughey out in the middle of the snow desert. When he takes off the communicator, like the long-range communicator, and just, like, tosses it and you know, like, things are going south, and they're struggling, it's just such, like, I can, like, my body is getting tense right now just thinking about this scene. Yes. Because when when they're on the ground, and Matthew McConaughey's on top of them, like, he, Matt Damon is bumping helmets trying to crack Matthew McConaughey's, and Matthew McConaughey's like, you have a 50-50 chance of killing yourself. And then Matt Damon says this line that says, those are the best odds I've had in a long time. And it's like, this man has crossed over. Like, he doesn't... Like, his mind is saying, I either want to die or I'm going to steal one of these ships and go home. Right. And you're like, this man is deranged. And because he's deranged, it's like, you can't reason with him. And 
even now thinking back on this scene, my mind is like, how many different ways could that have gone where Matthew McConaughey didn't have to get his helmet cracked? And I just think about it all, like, all the time. It's a great scene. Commander, there's a 50-50 chance you're going to kill yourself. Those are the best thoughts I've had in years. Right. If he could have admitted, like, I lied, I just needed to be rescued. It's not good here. We need to go to the other planet or whatever. He could have done that. Because I wondered that, too. Like, what made him have to stick to the lie? And I don't know if, like, maybe because he, like, put all this data in for years, he would have to admit to these people that he lied for the last right. 20 years or whatever. And he's worried that they would just leave him there, maybe. But when Matthew McConaughey's helmet cracks and he's choking... And, like, Matt Damon is, like, talking to him as he's walking away saying, do you see your kids? Do you see their faces? I'm like... And he's like, oh, I, I thought I could stay with you, but I can't. <laughs> like, uh, it turns out. It's, it is a masterful performance by Matt Damon, by the yeah. way. Oh, yeah. Like, it is so good. He goes and films The Martian the next year, and those two back-to-back space movies, great Matt Damon combo. Great Matt Damon. And, again, just the suspense... And then seeing Anne Hathaway like rush to his aid is such a good scene. But man, you really want to slap Matt Damon a thousand times. Right. Which it made me think I had to go back into Matt Damon's filmography and go, have I ever seen Matt Damon as a bad guy? And I want to say maybe the talented Mr. Ripley, I think he's bad or does some bad things in there. But he plays the hero so many times that it was a great choice casting choice right to pick him as the they say it all the time he's the best of us right dr mann well he's remarkable he's the best of us he inspired 11 people to follow him on the loneliest journey in human history and i love how christopher nolan does this in his movies he has people repeat lines Mm -hmm. over and over again either when they've been like they're believing something false or they've been sort of indoctrinated with this sort of thing it happens a lot in tenet it happens a lot in inception but they say over and over again well he's the best of us as if they're just repeating a line that they've heard a thousand times mm, that's good so matt damon tries to escape blows up the endeavor and then matthew mcconaughey and Anne hathaway have to like dock with this spinning spaceship again just great use of suspense and plot points to like cause this tension i feel like i pulled a couple g's just watching that scene (laughs) for sure it's such a great scene and there's this one line where i don't know if it's Anne hathaway or tars but they're like we can't dock with that thing and matthew mcconaughey's like it's necessary it's not possible no it's necessary I love that line. It's so good. It's like a triumph when he does it. You know, it just is such a relief. So we get to the black hole. He sends Anne Hathaway away to the third planet that is hopefully habitable. Mm-hmm. And Matthew McConaughey goes into the black hole. And this is the point where it strains credulity, as you will say. Mm. I don't know if you have that on a bingo card, listeners, but strains credulity. And Matthew McConaughey falls into a 3D bookcase. Or a 4D bookcase, I guess you would say. It's a, it's a tesseract. Made of strings, yes. Yes, uh, popularized by the Avengers. But a tesseract is actually a real thing, according to Neil deGrasse Tyson. It is a four-dimensional object with time as the fourth dimension. Right. And Matthew McConaughey communicates across time mm-hmm. to his daughter... Mm-hmm. The information of the black hole. He was the ghost the whole time. He was the ghost the whole time. When I 
remembered back on this. I feel like I had people's commentary in my mind in addition to my memory of the movie. And I was like, yes. oh, yeah, this scene is meh. But watching it this time, yeah, I was more okay with it. I was too. And I am. I was too because of this one line which saved it for me. It said something to the effect of, this is a projection of a multidimensional world or entity right. that is being shown to us in a way that we humans can understand. And I think that sort of line is a great way to explain like, well, yeah, it's not exactly like this. You know, later on, we're to believe that a future generation, millions of years from now, is able to deal with multiple dimensions and time and gravity in a more deluxe way. And they're able to kind of set up this Tesseract so that Matthew McConaughey can understand and interact with the world. And I think by saying that, you kind of glaze over a bunch of it and goes, well, yeah, you're not going to like when you go through a black hole in real life, which that happens not too often, I would say. <laughs> Has never. You're happened. not going to always end up in a 3D bookcase in your daughter's room. <laughs> right. But he was there specifically because a future people sent him to that moment in order to impact his daughter's life. So throughout the movie, there's this like implication that it might be aliens who set up the wormhole and the Tesseract. Right. And Matthew McConaughey is like, it might just be us in the future, like humans. Right. Right. Which do you think it was? I think it's them in the future, and here's why. I think, um, we can't get into this too much because we're approaching the end of this episode, yes. but humanity splinters at the end of this movie because there is a group that lives on the, the spinning flauta, and there is a group that is born as little squids on... The third planet. On, on Anne Hathaway's planet. planet. That's right, yeah. Edwards, Edmonds. And they're going to live their life on a new planet with new gravity and a new sun and a new sort of thing. So if ever humanity was going to diverge in look and shape and form and everything, it's going to be there. So if you're going to say millions of years from now, will the humans on a different planet look and be different than the ones who live on the the spinning wheel in space? Yes, I would say so. So I think it's the idea of it is aliens but the aliens are humans that live have lived their whole existence on another planet which that has a whole other question about is saving humanity is capturing the seeds of humanity and planting them on another planet actually saving humanity or does it require a connection to old humanity in order like to really keep our species alive and does Anne Hathaway and Matthew McConaughey become like the gods of that civilization? <laughs> because they were the I mean, first ancestor. They're definitely the midwives of that planet, mm. for sure. So what you're saying is, uh -huh. interstellar, uh -huh. Matthew McConaughey is a midwife. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, celest not celestial. Isn't that a, that's a Marvel thing. Celestial. A titan. Midwife. A, uh, no, yeah, a. So. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. An alien midwife, yes. So the movie ends with Matthew McConaughey coming out of the bookcase mm -hmm. and the future aliens slash people getting him back to Saturn so the flauta can pick him up. Right. And Matthew McConaughey finally is reunited with his daughter, who is like 80-something years old. Who really doesn't really have time for him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I am I am always disappointed in this scene because she is very old. That's not the disappointing part. Right, right. <laughs> Let me continue. <laughs> they hold <laughs> right. They hold 
Yeah. Uh-huh. By the way, Jessica Chastain is great as adult Murphy. Amazing. Murph. Yes. She's I just great. have to say. Yes, they hold hands and she's like I I knew it was you the whole time. I knew you'd come back to me because of my father. And then he was like, they have an interaction for uh, 40 seconds. At the end of this two-hour, 45-minute movie, they have a small interaction. And then she's like, well, you should probably get going. I know. Um, I've missed you. I have missed you and loved you my whole life. I don't know much about what's happened to you afterwards, but thanks for helping me save humanity. But to be honest, I have 30 kids and grandkids around me right now, (laughs) and they actually know and love me, and you kind of have your own thing to do, so peace. That is so disappointing to me. Yes. And like she says this line about no parent should have to watch their child die, and it's like, okay... I understand. I guess she's about to die in minutes. But not now. Right. Maybe she is. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, like, is it that close? Like, is she really about to die? I almost wish they would have not done it like that. I wish there was an alternate ending when Matthew McConaughey, like, walks into a room and 80-something-year-old Murph stands up from a table. Yes. They stare at each other. He touches her face. She touches his face. They touch foreheads to foreheads. Forehead to forehead. Like the scroll people. Yes. I wanted him to say, like, I'm sorry or something. Yes. Like, he he never says a line like that. He's never like, I'm sorry I left. I should have stayed or whatever it was. Or even I should have told you more about what I was doing. I should have, you know told the 10 year old more or something right. yes and then she could say some closure line of like it's okay right i lived a life you know what i mean like i had a family i i, I feel like there would have been better closure there maybe even like it leaves some undetermined amount of time and then we see like her gravestone or something like let there be closure and then have him leave to go to Anne hathaway or something because it's like he leaves her again like she's still alive and he leaves again and even though she told him to leave, it still feels bad. Like, right. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I guess I would have preferred, like, closure on her life and then have him go live the rest of his life on that planet with Anne Hathaway or something. So, I don't know. Maybe that would have been a better ending. I'm here now, Mark. I'm here. I think for a movie that takes its sweet time for the first hour and a half, I do feel like the end of the movie feels a little bit rushed and a little hollow and a little, like I said earlier in my review, it takes me through a lot of bumps and turns. And then at the end, I really could use like a warm cup of milk. And instead it's like pats me on the head and is like, see, it's all going to be fine. Humanity saved. And I'm like, Ugh. I needed some more cathartic rebonding of the dad and the daughter. Yeah. Listeners, tell us what you thought about Interstellar. Comment on our Instagram, at Movies on the Side there. You can also support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Movies on the Side. And if you haven't yet, we would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts to be discovered by more movie fans like yourself. And as we always say, I wish I could do a Michael Caine here. You should try it. Okay. <laughs> That'll be good. Thanks. Do not go gently into that good night. Old age should burn and rave a close of day. Rage. Rage against the dying of the lie. Did you turn into that guy from Pirates of the Caribbean? Mankind was born on Earth. (laughs) 
Do not go gentle into that good night. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.